3: And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Citizenship is a community act. Democracy gets its power from the people.
0: The shrinking of people participating in that process over time has landed us in a more polarized space. This is How to Be a Citizen from Pantsu Politics. Over four episodes, we talk about how to vote, how to debate, how to think about our relationship to our government and our communities. Join us
3: as we think about what
0: America in 2020 should be and what we should be to America. Hi, everyone. This is Elise, Managing Director of Pantsuit Politics. As we wrap up our How to Be a Citizen series, I wanted to remind you about all of the extra content we're offering on our Patreon page right now. Patrons of any level have access to our deep dives on the Federalist Papers, conversations Beth and Sarah are having with their kids about citizenship, and a beautiful series of coloring pages created for us by Carolyn Schwartz, a.k.a. Soul Mama. Don't forget to share pictures of you and your people coloring those pages, and be sure to tag both us and Carolyn, whose information and other work is linked here in the show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this series as much as we have enjoyed making it, and if you're new to the show, we hope that you'll subscribe and become a regular part of the wonderful community we have here at Pantsuit Politics.
3: This is Sarah. And Beth. You're listening to
0: Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations.
3: Welcome back to Pantsuit Politics and the final episode of our summer series, How to Be a Citizen. We have gone broad and talked about the philosophy and the relationship between the governed and the government. We have gone narrow and talked about how to register to vote, how to pick your news sources. And the question we're asking in this final episode is, where do we go from here? I think a
0: really good place to start in where we go from here is with our friend Cynthia Terrell from Represent Women. She talked with us about some big picture structural reforms that would allow our government to be more representative of the governed, as Sarah was mentioning. And what I really appreciated is that she began that conversation by talking to us about our rich history in the United States of addressing a structural challenge with a structural solution.
2: The United States has a really rich history of addressing structural challenges to our norms and our practices with structural solutions. So when we think back in history, of course, suffrage itself was a structural reform. Women weren't given the right to vote in the original constitution, and there was a big struggle to make sure that we were included. And that was very much a systems reform. You know, we didn't just encourage women to, to try harder to vote. We recognized they were actually physically barred from voting, so we had to change that law. But there have been a, a whole history of reforms that I think echo that same mindset. And uh, Title IX is a great example of another systems reform where we uh, recognized that there were barriers to women and girls having equal access, equal opportunities for education. So Title IX was enacted, and the Voting Rights Act is very much in that same mindset. And then uh, the Americans with Disability Act is also in that same mindset. We recognized that these things we called curbs were really hard for people in the wheelchairs to get over. And so instead of just telling the People in the wheelchairs, ah, you've really got to try harder, or somehow you're lacking ambition. We recognize there was a structural barrier and we did the cutouts and curbs, which are now not only made it possible for people in wheelchairs to have an opportunity to participate equally, but it really, you know, once you've made a systems reform, it's sustainable and it's enduring in a way that other kinds of efforts aren't always enduring. And and the segue I think to women's representation is that we've seen the, um, the real jumps in women's representation or swings in women's representation in the United States. And it's very much predicated, I think, on partisan advantage now in the United States. And we saw big wins for Democratic candidates in 2018 um, who were women because Democrats did well, Republicans do well in uh, the next the midterms or in the midterms in, in 2022 Then we could see losses in those gains for, for women candidates uh, because of the party that most of those women candidates came from. So I would argue that to really make uh, enduring progress towards balancing the gender in political representation, we really need to make these structural changes to make sure that all women across the ideological and geographic and racial spectrum have a chance to run, win, serve and lead at an equal rate with men.
3: And look, you know, the reality is the United States of America in the year of our Lord 2020 Needs a lot of structural changes. But this episode (laughs) is going to have to focus on one particular area. And because voting is such an essential act as a citizen, we thought let's focus on some of the structural reforms being proposed, being used in parts of the country with regards to the voting process, our ballots, how they look, how they're counted how our districts are drawn. Let's walk through some of these structural reforms to our voting system. So, Sarah, you have a lot
0: of experience with one of the things that I think could be easiest to address in terms of ballot reforms. And that is the way names appear on the ballots. Because if you are Mm -hmm. in a low information race, and it's a shame, as we talked about before, That low information races tend to be the highest impact on your actual life. The people who set local taxes, the people who decide what roads are going to get some construction, you know, who your mayor is, who your city council members are, are very big deals in your actual life. But a lot of us wander into the voting booth with very little information about those races. So ballot placement matters
3: a lot. I have been first on the ballot and lost I have been last on the ballot and won. So I don't think ballot position will make or break you. But I do think when people are going in and making quick, instinctual decisions because of a lack of local media or a lack of time or a lack of information or a lack of resources, whatever the case may be, then, you know, everyone thinks they're going in and you're really thinking it through. But psychologically, stuff like who's the first name on the list really plays a role. I mean, there is a lawsuit in Florida because you see this even in national, even in presidential races, that you pick up a few points just from being first. And I think, especially with local races, look, in a perfect world, every United States citizen will listen to our series. (laughs) And we will all become much more engaged in this process. And we will walk in understanding the candidates, understanding who we're going to vote for and why. But until we get to that perfect world, the biggest piece of the puzzle is name recognition. Our brains do something with the first name on the list and to our brains in that like split second, it becomes the name, you know, like by the time you look through the whole list and then look back up, I mean, isn't there something in standardized testing where people pick the first question when they don't know as well? Like I just, you know, brains are mostly monkey brains and a teeny tiny part human brain. (laughs) And so I think that, you know, nobody wants to think that about themselves. But a lot of times there are some real monkey brain decisions going on in the ballot. Box, And so the more we can just acknowledge that, accept that, and build in some protections, it would be beneficial.
0: And those protections could look like voting across the page instead of vertically, right? Just listing the names all on one row instead of in Mm -hmm. columns. I mean, I think there are just some ballot design things. We are in an era where it is hard to imagine better graphic design abilities and a better understanding of those decisions yeah. that our brains make. And so
3: we we have people who could work on that problem. You know, I would give anything for someone to study how impactful ballot position is in the booth on the day and when you get a vote-by-mail ballot. Because I think there's something about the time crunch that really plays up those reactions and instincts. And I wonder if when your ballot comes to you through the table and you're just sitting at your table and you can ask questions and you can look things up, if that sort of factor or level of input plays a much smaller role. You know, I, I my my instincts say that it probably does. This is just one in the many, many, many tallies in the corner for vote by mail. Um, which is another structural reform we should absolutely discuss as Americans. But I mean, I just I think there's there's this unwillingness to discuss these kind of behavioral, psychological reactions people have because it like messes with our narrative that we're all 100 percent informed voters acting of our own individual accord. And like anything that even if it's realistic that fights against that narrative, we have a a gut instinct to ignore. But I just think we should accept that, you know, it's a psychological process with that's sensitive to behavioral cues and all kinds of things, just like anything else. And so let's just let's work with that instead of trying to ignore it.
0: We also talked about the confusion that can happen as a result of straight ticket voting. And so just giving better information about how to complete the ballot, how the ballot will be counted do this, not that kind of examples. Mm -hmm. There are lots of opportunities to make these ballots easier to understand, more accessible to the entire American population. And I would love to see us have a real conversation about that time pressure. I also think that mail voting is far superior to voting in person. Whether we do it that way or not, I really would like us to have a national holiday to go vote Mm -hmm. and probably over a long weekend. I am completely comfortable with not getting the results of an election for a week or so, if that gives more people time to vote and time to consider their choices and time to think. You know, Where we really see suppression of voting is when there are so few locations that people arrive and have to wait forever and at some point have to make a decision. Do I hang here to vote or do I pick my child up from daycare on time? Or do I get penalized at work for being gone too long? Whatever it is, people should not have to make those kinds of choices in a country where we're supposed to democratically elect our representatives.
3: Well, listen, if you attended our fall Nuance Nation tour, you've already heard this spiel from me. But like, Australia is showing us up. They have holidays. They have barbecues. America, let me ask you this. Are we going to let another country get away with having a monopoly on basically a voting party that involves smoked meat i do not believe that we want that to belong solely to australia like we could no offense australia we could do it we could do it better come on like there's just there has got to be a better way and it's not i mean that's not even the right way to phrase it there is a better way we know there's a better way we can see it in other countries and we can see it in even within states in the united states like automatically registering people Having a holiday on Election Day, offering vote-by-mail, these are all ways that we can invite more people into the process. What a beautiful thing it would be if we had, in
0: November, a long weekend where a lot of our 4th of July displays of patriotism found a new home that Mm -hmm. allowed for some of these local candidates in particular to spend time with people in their constituencies where you really could go in those low information races and make an informed vote because your town establishes a tradition of a candidate forum the Saturday of election weekend or whatever it is. I mean, they're just we can get creative. We can have lots of fun. I think we can teach our children the importance of civic engagement much more clearly if we have this time carved out to do it.
3: And so here's the thing. So we we can talk about how to make this more enjoyable for the voter. I think especially as a person who's run for public office and served, we've got to think about a way to make this process more enjoyable for the candidates because it's not right now. (laughs) You know, like engaging with people, going door to door is lovely, but having to have all your hard work depend on little factors like the ballot position or bigger factors like a lack of fundraising, a lack of representation within the party, so that you can't get hurt. You know, you know, all these things that we look at and say we don't have the representation we want. We don't have representation that looks like the people they're representing. You know, there are structural challenges that can get at that because there are structural issues with why we don't have more women in representation and why we don't have more people of color in representation and why the process Is So awful to begin with, where you have to, you know, basically sign yourself and your family up for personal attacks and you have to have some way to pay your bills while you run a campaign for months at a time. There are structural issues that can make this ability to run for office open to a wider set of the population. Where would you start with this, Sarah?
0: What do you think is the first most important thing that we could do to make the process of running for office better for candidates?
3: Well, I mean, I think that we had Cynthia Terrell on, obviously, and she is a big proponent of proportional representation, ranked choice voting, this idea, especially I think of ranked choice, where I can't go after you and slaughter you or attack you personally, because at the end of the day, I might need your people to pick me as their second choice. Um, I think that that would be a huge part. So I think I think there's Two ways we need to break this down. One, the experience of running, which I think is where we really need to talk about ranked choice voting. And then the experience of fundraising, which is where I think we need to talk about gerrymandering in particular and some other things that I would propose. But let's talk about ranked choice voting first.
0: So if you've listened to our show before, you know that ranked choice voting is a drum that we will beat we until it. it is a reality. And that is because, first, we know ranked choice elections do tend to be happier for everyone involved. Because Uh as Sarah said, you need to be able to be someone's second choice. It is not this candidate wins or everything dies. (laughs) And, And that tenor really needs to come out of our elections. So if you don't know anything about ranked choice voting, another reason that it is really appealing is because it eliminates this whole argument about whether someone is throwing their vote away if they vote for a candidate that really aligns with their values but is not likely to win an election. And oh, my goodness, the conversations about whether you are throwing your vote away or whether you are enabling Mm -hmm. one person or another to win when it comes to presidential elections. We would
3: all be better served without those. I mean, I don't know about you, Beth, but I could live in a country where those conversations never take place again. I would not be sad if I never had to hear another conversation about throwing your vote away in my life. And it's not because I'm mad at the conversation. I'm mad at the reality that forces
0: people into that conversation. I think it is silly that if a libertarian candidate best represents my voice, I can't vote for that person without really deliberating on what the impact of my vote will be. I don't want to game it out. I want to vote for the person who best reflects my values. Uh, But we're in a system right now that forces all of us to game it out and then be mad at each other about how we gamed it out. Mm hmm. So on a ranked choice ballot, you would do exactly what it sounds like. You would list your preferences in order. And so if your first preference doesn't hit a certain percentage, then they drop down and take your second choice in figuring out who's going to win among the candidates that are left. We're accustomed to choosing our preferences in a number of contexts, but Cynthia has really been thinking about how we can internalize that choice among preferences and fun ways to get people used to this. And she's going to share a little bit about that here. I love her ice cream metaphor because, again, I just think it lowers the stakes. I think it brings the heat down, especially in a primary where you're hopefully choosing among a number of people all of whom would be acceptable to you, that instead of it becoming so intense, you can say, I would prefer strawberry, but if strawberry's
2: off the menu, I will take chocolate. The system of a candidate-based proportional representation, the way we're thinking of it and and proposing, would be a ranked choice voting system within a multi-seat district. So you're electing three people or five people to a district, and that would really address a number of, I think, the key um, ailments of our our political system right now. It would address the partisan um, unfairness or or poor distribution of, of partisan support by making it far more likely that there would be uh, moderate Republicans getting elected in Manhattan and in um, Massachusetts and in, in uh, Maryland, all the M places. And it would make it possible for rural Democrats to get elected in, a, in uh, numbers, which, which we just won't see our, with our single winner, winner-take-all voting system it also would have a big impact on electing more people of color. Um, the, the plan that we have in Congress called the Fair Representation Act would elect people of color, um, multiple constituencies of color from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And so instead of just one community of color or constituency group having a chance to elect a candidate of choice, you could have both both Latinos and African Americans, and maybe even Asian Americans, uh, you know, electing candidates of choice from the South, and and that's, I think, a significant um, step forward for our democracy. And then you'd also, of course, have have more women um, getting elected. We see from the data in jurisdictions that use ranked choice voting that women are getting elected at a higher rate uh, than before implementation. And the the ten states that use multi seat districts for their state legislatures are electing about twice as many women, um, And that's for a number of different reasons. One is uh, parties are more likely to uh, recruit a diverse slate, a gender-balanced slate, when more than one candidate is running because they want to appeal to as many voters as possible. Uh, Ranked choice voting elections are more civil, so more women are likely to run in those elections. And then they also can cost less money when you've combined a costly primary with a general or a, a runoff election with a general. So those are all reasons that women are more likely to get elected in these multi-seat rank choice voting districts, which we think is really a big step forward for democracy.
0: Can you flesh out a little bit um, why these elections tend to be more civil?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. In In a traditional rank choice voting election, as we've seen it now in about the 20 cities or so and in the state of Maine where it's used. But if, if the three of us were campaigning, for example, for the same office, I'd want to be appealing to your supporters to rank me second or third on their ballot. Mm-hmm. And so we have really an incentive to find common ground and points of intersection. And um, we have a, 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 just a baked in incentive to be as civil as possible and uh, to focus on issues, which really, I think um, we've seen demonstrated now in the city elections and the municipalities that are using ranked choice voting, which I think is really an exciting an exciting element to this proposal.
0: Can you talk through how to actually get this done? Let's say enough of us agree that the benefits of this system are, are worthy of trying out on a national scale. What has to happen to get us there?
2: Well, that's a great question. I think that we're employing a a, a bottoms up and a top down strategy. Um we have to be ready to to change systems at every level. I think one important um, thing to consider when talking about this reform is that um, at the federal level, there's nothing in the constitution that prohibits changing the way we elect the house of representatives. The only thing the constitution specifies is that they get elected every two years. And so that's, you know, really quite a bit of latitude. And so I would say the best strategy is to find examples of times when there has been an undemocratic result, and we see that happening really uh, all around the country, where either um, multiple women have run in a primary, perhaps a congressional primary, and split the vote, and a and a man has emerged as the winner. That's a that's a good context for organizing around ranked choice voting. Really, the uh, What needs to happen is is, uh, finding cities where it's it's likely that um, there there are lots of citizens who want to have increased turnout and more representative government and work at the municipal level. Um, There's also uh, potential to, to have these bills in Congress move forward for the time being, as I would say, thought pieces, but um, very quickly could become real reforms, uh, reform measures that uh, could get bipartisan support. Then I also think another perspective or lens is working on it um, for the elections that probably most Americans pay attention to, and that's presidential elections. And so that's one of the things that, that FairVote is working hard on is to work with both Republican and Democratic state committees to um, revise their primary and caucus process to employ rank choice voting to select the presidential nominees. And so at this point, I think there are six states uh, that are going to be using um, it for the Democratic nomination process, and we're still reaching out to more um, and to, to. Uh, potential Republican partners as well to see if there's a a way to fold in a ranked choice voting ballot, either for early voters, which is what they're going to do in Iowa, or for all voters, which is what they're going to do in, I think, Alaska and Hawaii and um, Nevada and a handful of other states. And then I think another part of the, the process of making this idea uh, accessible to people is just having more opportunities to use it for all kinds of other decisions. So um, we have an app in production, a ranked choice voting app um, that, you know, we've had a couple other iterations of them, but this should be um, one that's really ready uh, to allow voters to make all, all kinds of decisions about, um, you know, their, where you want to go. Uh, for pizza or what's your favorite ice cream or what's your favorite (laughs) game of Thrones character. So that just that process of normalizing it, um, I think for Americans is a a big step, which I think, I guess I'll just point out that having preferences for things in life is pretty much, I think the backbone of everything. I mean, I don't know how about you guys still, but you know, some of us like Hondas more than Toyotas, but we'd settle for Toyota. And some of us like, uh, you know, chocolate ice cream, but we'd leave the store with a strawberry cone if that's all there were. And um, we have preferences for sports teams and for colleges and um, for authors. And so ranked choice voting very much, I think, matches the, the political psychology of Americans. And that's why I'm so confident that uh, it'll take off once Amer- more Americans have, it, have been exposed to it.
3: Let me just tell you why I love this, because we had another conversation with Joshua Douglas, the professor from U.K. Law School. And it's not just let's normalize this inside relationships, which who would have thought that having fun, (laughs) ranked choice conversations about ice cream inside your family would be a political act. But I think Cynthia's right. I think it is normalizing it, but that you can use this to educate people to actually institute the change That you want to see. Listen to this example from Josh Douglas.
4: Yeah, this is a great example of one of these reforms that has started at the local level and now is starting to spread more and more. So, you know, with ranked choice voting, as your listeners surely know, people are able to rank order their preferences instead of just casting their ballot for one person. And actually many cities used ranked choice voting decades ago. Cincinnati, for example, uh, used ranked choice voting uh, in the early 1900s. But it went, went out of use. Um, and then modern era started in 2002 in San Francisco. Uh, thanks largely to an individual named Stephen Hill, another one of these democracy champions, just an everyday American who decided that he could make a difference in his local community. And he he had the idea of trying to adopt some form of proportional representation for the city's elections and and wanted to move toward rank choice voting uh, and so he would try to he tried to get support for it by going to bars at night and uh, gathering the attention of the crowd and saying hey let's all rank order our favorite beers just as a way to uh, demonstrate how the process worked and, and that it was easy to understand. Uh, and they did get it passed after a campaign to use it in the city's elections and the, the people tend to love it there. And so now that's spread to other places. So it's used in Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, Portland, Maine used it and it was so successful and people loved it Now that now Maine uses it statewide and the voters have voted twice to adopt ranked choice voting Uh, in Maine for all of its elections. Now, there's some legal issues in terms of what the Maine Constitution says, but it was used in 2018 for the congressional elections there, and it actually made a difference in one of the races. We also see places like Memphis uh, that's already passed ranked choice voting, and the voters have agreed to it twice now, actually, and so it should be implemented soon. Um, Other cities like Nashville are considering it. Uh, And so I think you do see a lot of momentum. Now, one hurdle is that in some states, cities can't adopt it. Essentially, state law doesn't allow their localities to craft their own election rules. But in the states that the cities do have what's known as home rule or the ability to craft your own rules, you see a lot of movement toward this, This as I said, also statewide in Maine and hopefully some other places as well.
3: Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, H-E-L-P dot com slash
0: Sarah, let's make this very concrete and talk about the past Democratic primary pre-South Carolina. So right before the voters of South Carolina gave a resounding stamp of approval to Joe Biden. But after we've had a few people drop out who weren't thriving in the process. Give us your top three. Elizabeth Warren,
3: Pete Buttigieg. I think Joe Biden. Yeah. No. yeah, no, let me do it again. I think it would have been Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar. What about you?
0: OK, so mine would have been Buttigieg. Klobuchar, Biden. So in our race, Elizabeth Warren would have come out and we would have consolidated around Buttigieg if just the two of us were choosing the Democratic nominee. So that's just a really simple way. And, you know, expand that out to lots and lots of people and you can just see how it's a better
3: process. Yeah. Or you know what? I might have thrown Andrew Yang in third just to say like, hey, this issue is important to me. Like, I love the idea of ranked choice voting because you can... Put forth a narrative instead of just a person. Like you can actually prioritize some policy issues and show through your rank choice and your vote that it's not just I'm in love with this person, but that there are issues that this particular candidate, why I don't want them to be the candidate, like the issues that they are prioritizing are also of top priority to me.
0: So rank choice voting would be so helpful. It almost feels like a no brainer to me. I would like to see mm-hmm. it expand throughout these United States. We also need to talk about, though, the maps in which people are running, the actual districts, (sighs) the congressional districts that are a mess, that have been calculated to target a very select group of voters. It's frustrating. It's a conversation that I feel is so often a dead end with people. You know, if you're in a state of despair about American (laughs) democracy and our republic, and you start talking to somebody for a while, and you get to gerrymandering, it just kind of causes everybody to throw their hands up in the air. Because the answer, going back to the Federalist Papers, for most of our problems has been political accountability. At some point, the voters have had enough and they will hold people accountable and they will make change. And gerrymandering is just kind of the end of those conversations because you think, but the House is stacked to win here. It is against us. We, we actually cannot exercise political accountability because of the way congressional districts are drawn.
3: You know, this to me is tied up very closely with the issue of apportionment that we are dividing up the same 435 people. When our population has ballooned since we set that number in 1920, just because that's how many chairs fit in the room. It wasn't. Well, okay. in fairness, it was a little bit more than that. It was an ongoing debate about rural versus urban representation. It was also about how many chairs fit in the room. Even if we solve the issue of gerrymandering and we let computers start drawing the lines and we have these nonpartisan commissions like you're seeing in Michigan, the other piece of that puzzle is even if you're drawing fair districts, but the districts, the representatives for those districts are having upwards of one million constituents, which is what we're looking at like if we don't stop, if we don't figure out a way to add some representatives, then I'm not sure how much of the problem it's going to get at. Because to me, the, the gerrymandering gets to polarization because you are just you're only worried about being primaried and those district sizes gets to fundraising because you have when you're trying to reach a million people or several hundred thousand constituents you have to just use mass media which requires a lot of money and it's that same thing like people don't feel empowered if you're one of a million constituents do you really feel like your voice is going to matter or even if you're one of 200,000 constituents like i just think this is way bigger than the framers ever imagined you know james madison wrote an amendment to the constitution and was was thinking around like 40,000 constituents per representative. We're way off from that. And so to me, just rethinking not just what the districts look like, but how many constituents are in those districts is a structural change that we desperately need. Well, speaking of the framers, we
0: talked with Michael Berman and Chris Beam about the Federalist Paper explaining their thinking on the size of those congressional districts and how many people ought to make up the House of Representatives, which I thought was so interesting to read because it's really sort of a Goldilocks Federalist Paper. Well, mm-hmm. we don't want them representing too few people If they do, then they're going to be so beholden to those interests that they're going to be unable to connect to the larger United States and its interests. But if they represent too many, then they're going to be disconnected from the concerns of the people they're supposed to be representing. So we're trying to find this just right spot. And that is the issue that is plaguing us in a different way because of the explosion of our population.
5: So one thing that struck me there that maybe a little bit off point, but it's it's important because it's throughout the Federalist Papers. And that's the way that these guys, uh, the, the framers, were empiricists, and they were looking around and seeing what was going on and always using that to help build their arguments. So throughout the Federalist Papers, you'll see references to what's going on in the states because you had these 13 states, you know, and they had set up governments, and they were all somewhat different, and they all offered models about how you might do things. Now, there were other models, too. There were the Romans and there were the Greeks, but, but basically, they had the states, and you see that throughout this paper, uh, where they're constantly saying, well, you know, New Hampshire does this, and New York has this, and, you know, even though these two states are the same size, they have different, and, you know, and I, I think they're drawing here on the different models and trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. In, in designing this. Now, of course, some of what they're talking about there becomes somewhat mute later on because, Chris, remind me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they finally set by statute the size of the House at 435.
1: They did. Yeah, they did. And, and that's relevant because I was, I was doing a little math. He says you need one rep for every 30,000. So if, if you just do the math, that's well over 10,000 members of Congress mm-hmm. now. I find that interesting. But I think 55 is just an outstanding representation of Madison's kind of finding the midpoint of human nature Hmm. from, you know, on the one hand he says, and this is in the same paper on the one hand, he says, passion is just inevitable and it's going to overrule reason. And so you have to keep that passion under control at the same, in the same Letter, He says, you cannot have Republican government unless the power is ultimately in the hands of the people. And so if you are unwilling to trust the people, you cannot claim to be a Republican, you cannot claim to be uh, supporting uh, a free society. And so you have to be able to do both. And Madison's like, you know, arguing that we have done both, right? We, we accept that human beings are, um, are passionate uh, uh, and, uh, and, and ambitious, and we're not denying that. We're not classical Roman um, demands in terms of virtue. But we also believe that human beings are capable of self-rule. And so we're, we're trying to find a place where both of those things can be true.
0: So Federalist 55 talks about what a hard problem this is. Sarah has been running around the country with me telling everybody what a big problem it is and how we need to build a new capital that will hold lots and lots more representatives because we've got to have a more responsive government than the one that we have Mm -hmm. right now. And that takes us back to gerrymandering. So when we have the appropriate size that people are representing, we want to make sure that those districts are drawn in a fair way. If you feel, as I do sometimes, despairing about this, Professor Josh Douglas tells the story of how redistricting started to happen in Michigan, and it is one of the most inspiring things I've heard in a long time.
4: So this is a problem that plagues both sides of the political spectrum, or all sides, where politicians in charge have the power to draw the lines under which they run for reelection. And it's a a problem uh, gerrymandering that is drawing the lines in a kind of a skewed way is a problem that you know, has plagued our country since its founding, really. But it's become even worse now with sophisticated technology and computers. Politicians can fine-tune the lines so closely that they can really dictate how different districts perform and entrench themselves in power. And that's what we've seen, especially after the 2010 census and the new round of redistricting that happened then. So what we've seen on the positive side is that people are trying to take the process away from these entrenched politicians who are self-interested In how they draw the lines Uh, So the, the best example And kind of my favorite story On the redistricting front Comes from Michigan In 2016, two days after The 2016 election in November A woman named Katie Fahey Posted on Facebook A simple message She wrote Hey, I'm thinking of taking on Redistricting in Michigan Anyone want to help? Smiley face She says a smiley face emoji is important, so I always make sure to include that. And what she said was that she knew nothing about it, but she was frustrated by the tenor of the country. And really, she was just afraid of going to Thanksgiving dinner that year. She said some of her family members were Bernie Sanders supporters. Others voted for Donald Trump. And she was like, I just can't handle the political conversations that will happen Uh, in Thanksgiving 2016 after this uh, divisive election that we just had. So what's the one thing that kind of most people can get behind and understand is unfair about our democracy? And most people agree is, is not good for democracy, except for those entrenched politicians that are doing it. And it's gerrymandering. Well, a funny thing happened. Not very many of her family members and friends actually responded, but a whole bunch of strangers started sharing that post. First, it was a half dozen, then a few, a few more, and all of a sudden, hundreds and even thousands were sharing the post and contacting her and saying, "Katie, yes, I want to get involved. Tell me what to do." And so she turned to her coworker. She was working for the Michigan Recycling Coalition, and she turned to her coworker and said, "You know, you saw this thing I posted on Facebook, and people are contacting me, asking me what to do. I don't know what to do. What do we do?" So they did a little research and ultimately realized there's no group out there that was focused on this issue in Michigan. So she created her own organization. And they called it Voters, Not Politicians to demonstrate the basic premise that it should be the voters who choose their politicians and not the other way around. They gathered signatures, uh, several hundred thousand signatures in a span of 90 days for a ballot proposition to change the state constitution, all through volunteers. She reached out to Democrats, Republicans, independents of all sides to get people involved and uh, ultimately got enough signatures, got on the ballot and then waged a campaign. And in 2018, the voters adopted overwhelmingly a state constitutional amendment to take the power to draw the lines away from politicians and put it with an independent redistricting commission. And so now in 2021, after we had the next round of the census, instead of an unfair process dictated by one political party that skews the results, Michigan will have independent redistricting commission that will draw much fairer lines. We see this in Michigan. We see this in a handful of other states and even cities as well are adopting local redistricting reform. So I think, you know, with the Supreme Court this past June saying it's not going to enter the fray and resolve issues of partisan gerrymandering. uh, The next best hope is these independent redistricting commissions. And we're seeing a lot of success on that front.
3: Recently, I was listening to an episode of On Being, thanks to the generous recommendation of one of our listeners, and Krista Tippett was talking about how during her conversation with Representative John Lewis, civil rights icon, he talked about the discipline of the civil rights activists and that part of that spiritual discipline was creating in your mind and focusing um, with your spirit and your heart on a vision of the future And, you know, I think that that is so essential. Hearing those inspirational stories from Professor Josh Douglas, watching the work in so many states across the country of people saying, I know we've done it this way. I want to do it different. And thinking it seems big. Anything, you know, involving a constitutional amendment seems like Mount Everest, basic structural changes to our ballots and the way we vote, they seem big. But that spiritual practice of saying, this is what I want the future to look like. This is what I want. I want to work on this as a citizen now so that citizens two generations can be working on something bigger and better. Like, I just think that that is believing and envisioning and thinking about what you want the country to look like, not just what's wrong with it now, Not just identifying problems, but envisioning a better version of your country, of your nation.
0: I think that's right. It is incredibly difficult to get people excited about these process reforms until they really get them. And when I'm having conversations about this stuff, and especially when Sarah and I were out on the road talking with people about it, you can see the moment when someone gets it and gets all the possibility wrapped up in it. Not that structural solutions ensure perfect results. They don't. We had some pretty phenomenal design decisions in the Constitution that have not guaranteed perfect outcomes, but that they move us in that direction and that they open up potential in that direction. And I think a lot of what it means to be a citizen is to constantly be, as Mark McKinnon says every time we talk with him, a prisoner of hope, to be someone who has this relentless optimism about the ability of people within the structures of their government to get closer and
3: closer to that more perfect union. Look... In the midst of a global pandemic and a reckoning with systemic racism and a presidential election and all these things, the the scales are falling from our eyes and we're seeing problems, but we are also seeing a path of change that is historic. You know, when we started this podcast, I went to Washington, D.C., and I had a conversation with the leader of the AFL-CIO about um, universal basic income. And we put it on this show, and nobody knew what I was talking about. It just was out of the realm of possibility. You had to start from zero. That was not that long ago, maybe two to three years ago. Andrea Yang comes along, accelerates it, and now in the middle of the coronavirus, we have the government cutting checks to everybody. I just think we cannot underestimate how quickly things can shift. And like sometimes part of this process as a citizen is being prepared for that moment because it is difficult to create it, let's be honest. Sometimes it's hard to create that historical moment, that opportunity when the lightning hits and you can take advantage of it. Like You can't make lightning, but you can sure as hell be prepared for when it strikes. And I think that's part of the work of being a citizen, especially in a historic moment like this. We got to be prepared. We got to be ready. We got to be comfortable with these ideas. We have got to have conversations with the people we love so that when the lightning strikes and our moment is available, we're ready to move because we need to move. Another place we probably need
0: to move on is the Electoral College. It is a hard conversation I'm fearful that we have all settled into talking points about the Electoral College in the way that we do sometimes, such that it's a partisan discussion, when that's really unhelpful. I also don't want to exacerbate the sort of real America versus coast kind of narrative that can come up Mm -hmm. around the Electoral College. But when you look at the history of the Electoral College, and when you think about the fact that the Supreme Court recently told us It is a mechanical exercise. The Supreme Court has told us that the electors of the Electoral College are not entitled to exercise their own judgment if their states have told them who to vote for. So any thought we once had of the Electoral College as a check on the populace, and if you read Federalist 68, that is how Hamilton advocates for it, as a check on the populace is gone. It's out the window. We are told in case law that states can remove and fine electors who deviate from the outcome of their state's popular votes. You have to start to ask yourself, what is the point of this? Why are we Americans now expect to directly elect their president? Why are we disrupting that expectation in a way that doesn't seem to have any benefit
3: on the other side of it? Right, because I think to me, there's no conversation among the framers of the Electoral College as a balance between small states and big states. It was that protection against sort of, I don't know, the ignorant masses. That seems harsh, but am I am I getting that wrong, Beth? Is that not, to, is that not your understanding of what the purpose was? That's
0: right. I mean, Hamilton really brags about the Electoral College in Federalist 68. You know, if we didn't get this perfect, we're awfully close. <laughs> it's it's a real sense of we are going to elect people of virtue and those people are going to have the only purpose, the only purpose for which they're going to be in this position and the only purpose for which they're going to meet is to independently think about the qualities of people who should be the president and they're going to meet in their own states so no one can influence them the way they would if they were meeting in a giant group. We are ensuring that there is this check on the masses through this process and none of that is, I mean, that's just fantasy compared to where we are today.
3: You know, so if that's not the case anymore, the conversation about well, then they'll only have to go to Texas and California. I think there's two problems with that. One, that's still the case now, y'all. If Texas shifts blue, like that's a whole new ball game, And you're still playing to the populous states. And two, I think it perpetuates this idea that the only election that matters is the presidential election. I think our preciousness about the Electoral College and keeping it perpetuates the narrative that the only national election, the only election at all that any American should care about is the presidential one. I think that's right.
0: Where there is concern about a balance among states, we have other aspects of our system that protect that, specifically the United Mm -hmm. States Senate. And I think our renewed focus on the United States Senate occupying the role in our government that it's supposed to as that legislative branch being supreme and the Senate being the stronger of the two chambers Would be really, really healthy.
3: So, Beth, are you still only supportive of changes through the national interstate voting compact where if a certain amount of citizens if if states vote that once enough states join the compact to get to 270, then they'll all vote with a popular vote winner? Because that used to be our compromise. But it sounds to me past this Supreme Court decision You might be up for any way we want to change the Electoral College. Well, I hate this Supreme Court decision.
0: I think the ways the Electoral College get changed are either through a constitutional amendment or through the National Interstate Popular Voting Compact. And so either way, you're going to have to have a, a pretty good consensus among states to do it. And I think that that is important. I don't think we should go changing something as fundamental to our government as this, even when changing it seems pretty obvious without everybody being on board. What I love about the National Interstate Voting Compact is, one, that could happen really quickly. That's easier Mm -hmm. than a constitutional amendment. And two, I love the idea of states saying we are voluntarily going to join this to respect the preferences of our neighbors. I think that would be so healthy for our country. I think the conversation around that is really different than a hotly contested constitutional amendment. So that would be my preferred route. But I think it's very important that we start having a more honest discussion of what the Electoral College was designed to do, even where people will say that what Hamilton said was covering for protecting enslavement in the South and the the Southern states' power, you know, all of those origins are problematic and the virtue of the Electoral College is not manifesting as best as I can see in any real way in modern America. And I think we do need to do something about it. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skin care is a huge piece of that.
3: So I mean, look, we have an aggressive list. Give it to the like, way. world college. <laughs> yeah, give her. And, and again, though, I think that's fine. I think this is about a vision and about forward momentum to that vision. It's not a checklist. A checklist and an emphasis on productivity is disempowering, particularly when you use it in your role as a citizen. As a citizen, our job is forward movement, connection with our community, momentum. Momentum is what we're looking for as citizens, not fixes. And I just think that that's abandoning our linear mindset and our checklist mentality and bringing a more holistic understanding to who we are as citizens and what we can get accomplished as citizens and what we want to see happen within our government is a real healthy direction for America to move in.
0: I also just think It's been very inspiring for me to use the Federalist Papers as a guide through this series because I read them as an invitation to comment on what you want your government to be. It's an invitation to have an aggressive list. It's an invitation to connect the way your government runs to your values. And I almost think that if it's so aggressive to be talking about redistricting the size of representation Ranked choice voting, the things that we've touched on today, that is not an aggressive list at all compared Mm -hmm. to what the framers of the Constitution were up against. Those are things that should be achievable in our lifetimes. Those are things that really are intended to reflect the will of America, whatever that will is. Like, that's not about prioritizing one ideology over another. It is about saying, hey, the population of this country is so much larger than the one we started out with. Hey, the factions have ascended (laughs) into the United Mm -hmm. States Congress Mm -hmm. and into our state legislatures in such a way uh, that we don't have the political accountability the system was designed to invite. And so it's time to get back to work. We need a new set of Federalist Papers and a new set of changes and a way to accomplish these objectives that will benefit everyone.
3: I mean, you're advocating for a new constitutional Congress where the whole thing's up for reexamination? Maybe. I think I am. Maybe. I don't know. I think that's a hard question. I think I am. I just think the more you learn about, particularly with our current reckoning with systemic racism and our understanding that our founding documents were written and infected Every word, every paragraph, every structure, every compromise was infected by slavery and that institution and the role it played in southern states and in the economy as a whole. There's just a part of me that's like, yeah, yeah, I think it's time to go back. Why did they invent? Why did they put that in? Why did they put in constitutional conventions if we were never intended to use them? And if everything's up for grabs, everything's up for grabs. I don't know. I think maybe that's that's where we need to be. I don't know. I mean, my hesitation
0: in it is that I worry that we would approach that too as a, we have to get everything this time or because then we'll be done for another 200 years. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we're quite ready to do the work of a really well-done document that we enshrine for another 200 years. I think we got some cultural work to do before we're quite there. But then there's part of me that thinks these are the things that force that cultural work to happen. And I would like to hear people speaking again in phrases like we hold these truths to be self-evident. I would like to be talking about what truths our government is based on. I hate that the most interesting, high-minded discussion in this country takes place in the Supreme Court. You know, that's why I love those Supreme Court decisions, even when I hate the result and even when they're written by Samuel Alita, who I find to be just obnoxious on every level. I love those opinions because they ask the big questions. They say things that we are too cynical to talk about in regular life. And I want that, I want that high-minded Philosophical discourse again. I think it's important. I think we're better for it. I think it is the only way that we move people beyond the economic motives that have caused us to safeguard racism for so long and that have caused us not to confront our history with indigenous people in this country and that have caused us to have a foreign policy that is completely
3: incoherent. We use parenting as a metaphor a lot throughout this series. And I, I think about there's never a good time. There's never the perfect moment to get pregnant. Or maybe there's never the perfect moment to have a constitutional convention. Sounds right to Maybe me. the process yeah. itself is what invites those big questions. The process itself is what invites that cultural change, that deep cultural questioning about where we are and where we want to be. I mean, maybe that's the process that makes that possible. Well, I would be delighted to write Federalist 86 if that's on the table. <laughs> As is our way on Pantsuit Politics, we started with how do you register to vote (laughs) and ended this series with constitutional convention. So I don't know. I think that's all she wrote both she's for right now. And I want she's writing in the next iteration. So Mm -hmm. good place
0: to be. Thank you all so much for joining us. Please keep this conversation with us going. If you are new to New Politics, we are so thrilled that you joined us for this series and hope you'll find us everywhere. Sarah's morning news briefs on Instagram so that you get that daily engagement with what's going on. We do some Twitter threads where I like to use you know, some levity explaining difficult things happening and deeper dives on the Federalist Papers, Supreme Court decisions, you name it, on Patreon. Thank you again for being here. We'll be back with you next week to jump back into 2020 election coverage. Keep it on still.
3: Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive
0: producers. Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen,
2: David McWilliams,
0: Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited,
1: Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia,
0: Lori
3: Lodeau, Emily Neesley, Allison Luzader,
5: Tracy Putoff,
3: Julie Haller.
5: Jared Minson.
3: To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics.
0: You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.